0: would you open God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 15? Second Samuel chapter 15. If you're visiting with us, we are currently working through and uh, exploring together the highs and lows of the book of Second Samuel. Uh, we are in a part of the book when we see the dark, Side, the, the difficult, painful, uh, bitter side of, of King David's life. And this morning we continue our way through this journey by hearing of uh, the conspiracy, the revolt uh, that Absalom led against David. Here's God's word for us this morning 2 Samuel chapter 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand besides the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And uh, when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land, Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. But Absalom, and so Absalom, stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of the four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vows, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord." The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilah. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise. Let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtakes us quickly, and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Kirithites, and all the Pelathites and all the six hundred Gittites, who followed him from Gath, passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. For you are a foreigner and an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go, I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives... And as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Itai, go then, pass on. So Ittai, the Gittite, passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, and with his head covered, And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And he was told to David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the Archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priest with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you join me? asking God to bless the preaching of this Word and to bless the hearing of it so that it would be profitable for our hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank You for re- revealing Your Word to us. I ask that You would help me proclaim it now, and I hope that You would help all of us hear it. Father, that Christ would be exalted, that Your purposes would be accomplished, and that Your Holy Spirit would work in us, in our own hearts, a desire to follow your King, the King that you have placed over us. We pray this, Father, in the name of Christ. Amen. This chapter is long. Uh, this chapter would be easy to preach by itself, uh, aside from the rest of the story of Second Samuel. Uh, These things are happening to David because God decreed them as consequences for David's act of revolting against the Lord back in chapter 11. God sent his prophet, Nathan, to confront David about his sin. And if you remember, back in chapter 12, David repented of his sin. David realized that what he had done with Bathsheba and against Uriah, they were sins against the Lord. And David genuinely repented. And God put away his sin, forgave David of his sin. And yet... While David repented genuinely and while God forgave his sin, David's sin, they were consequences of the sin that God still decreed against David. If you remember in in chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, Nathan said these words to David after, after Nathan already assured David that, Uh, his sin was forgiven, Nathan said, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Consequence of sin. And in this chapter, chapter 15, we get to see the unfolding of the evil that God decreed against David, rising up evil against him from his own house. Now, even though these events have been God's decree... It does not absolve Absalom of his wicked ways. His actions, Absalom's actions in this chapter are evil. God said they were evil back in chapter 12. And what we see in David in this chapter is a heart that in the midst of God's discipline... He still seeks the Lord. In this chapter, these two major characters, Absalom and David, are set in contrast before us. Through their choices, we see two opposite paths the path of stealing the throne, the path of revolt, and on the other side, the path of finding refuge in the Lord. David will get to experience the bitter taste of what it looks like for his own son to revolt against him. Just as God's king in the Davidic covenant that was established back in chapter 7 received the status of very special status, of being God's son. Remember the Davidic covenant? He shall be a son to me. That was one of the promises of the Davidic covenant about the king that God appointed in this covenant. He shall be a son to me. But David, after being established in this Davidic covenant as the son of God on the throne, David revolted against God. David despised the word of God. David acted against God. And now, even though David's sin is forgiven, in this chapter, we see the unfolding of God's decree for David to experience the bitter taste of being revolted against. It's, uh, it's like a conversation I heard this week when I was with Paul talking to another prospective member. And uh, Paul shared a story from his dad as his dad told him, uh, trying to teach him about certain feelings that he as a father had towards his son, Paul, and reminding him, it is only when you will have your own child you will feel what I'm feeling. There's something of that here in God allowing David to experience and to, to taste the bitter taste of being revolted against. So, the the chapter that we have before us, these two characters, Absalom and David, uh, the the contrast that we have between them in this chapter teaches us the lesson that the bitter taste of sin leads us to seek refuge in the Lord. The bitter taste of sin leads us to seek refuge in the Lord. Sometimes we don't seek refuge in the Lord because we only get to see the sweet taste of sin. We only get to see the, the, immediate, the immediate satisfaction of sin, the, the joys of sin. And, and David had tasted some of that when he had rebelled against the Lord, when he took Bathsheba for his wife, when he killed his, her husband so that he would cover his sin. David had tasted the the sweet taste of sin. But now he gets to taste the bitter taste of sin. And when he tastes it, what we see in David in this chapter is, again, a heart that fully casts itself on the Lord. So this chapter puts before us two paths, revolt or refuge. Let's look at the lesson how the bitter taste of sin leads us to seek refuge in the Lord. The, the two parts, the two characters, uh, have a, lead us to have two points in this message. The first point is seeking to steal the throne. That's Absalom. Seeking to steal the throne. We see this in verses 1 through 13. The explicit attempts of Absalom are made to take the throne of Israel are clear in the first half of this chapter. There's no trace in Absalom of committing his ways to the Lord. There's no sense of him waiting for his father to pass away and thus take the throne in succession. No, Absalom wants to take the throne now while his father is still alive, still on the throne Absalom is a man who seeks to grab power and control and ultimate authority for himself. He is not satisfied for someone else to be on the throne, to be the king. He wants to be the king. Now, friends, uh, seeing leaders rise up and wanting to take the throne from somebody else's hands is not new in the history of humanity. Planning coups uh, is, is a common thing if we read the history of human civilization. It's not unusual to see a political or a military revolt. But what makes Absalom's revolt even more shocking is that the one he revolted against was his father. That's significant. Absalom didn't revolt against a foreign king who imposed taxes on the people. Absalom didn't revolt against another dynasty within the Israelites. Absalom revolted against his own dad. The throne he sought to steal had been occupied by his father. In Absalom's behavior, we see two facets, not the only two, but two important facets of sin. On one side, one facet of sin is the act of, of wanting to grab ultimate authority and control away from God and attribute it to ourselves. We want to be ultimately in charge. We want to have the ultimate say. We want things to be done our own way. This is an important facet of sin. That's why we oftentimes describe sin as wanting to live life on your terms. Rebellion, the rebellion of sin, is not necessarily killing somebody like David did, it's simply wanting to live life on your terms terms, for you to be ultimately in charge, for your word to have the ultimate and last authority. That's Absalom's desire here. The other facet of sin reflected in what Absalom does here, the other important facet of sin reflecting the story is that the one against whom we revolt is the God who made us, the God who gave us life our heavenly father we don't revolt against a foreign king we revolve against the one who made us that's why even in our gospel presentations when we have an opportunity to share the gospel with each other or with other friends and and co-workers or neighbors it's important for us to start the story of the gospel at the ple- with god the creator who made us. He gave us life. We owe our life to him. Don't forget to start the gospel message with God, our creator and heavenly father. So that when we get to the point of speaking about man's rebellion, the sting of that rebellion becomes more sharp when we connect the dots that we are rebelling against our maker. This is what Absalom does here. And then in telling the story of how he, he revolts and the steps that lead to the coup, uh, there's actually a few moves that Absalom makes that the author is highlighting for us that are very instructive for us to understand the moves of revolt, how revolt the path of revolt unfolds. So even for us as Christians, uh, we can listen up and, and and watch out for these ditches, for these clues, for these paths of, of revolt. And if you're not a Christian, uh, this is a wonderful opportunity to just listen in to see what the path of revolt looks like so that you too may, may turn to the Lord and not continue on this path of revolt. But there's a, in Absalom a prior sign of hunger for power. Uh, before Absalom grabs the throne, he Notice what he does in verse 1. After, Absalom got himself, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Why are these mentioned here in the story? Well, these were signs of power. These were elements, the chariots and horses, that God forbid the kings of Israel to long after. Back in Deuteronomy 17. These were, these were elements on the forbidden list for the kings to have. But here, here's Absalom. He's not the king, but he wants to have the optics of someone who is in charge, someone who has power, someone who has influence. Absalom was a driven man. He was a disciplined man. He was a determined man. He did not mind showing off his nice toys of power. Friends, Absalom is a man who shows cravings for power and authority even before he got the throne. We may not make much of of owning these things at first, but these were clues of Absalom's cravings in his heart. The heart that was set on grabbing attention of others. I mean, nobody was allowed to have chariots. But Absalom had them. Why? He was a king's son. He could, he could do what he wanted. It was a means of grabbing the attention of others and establishing himself as authority. Friends, I wonder, you may not be craving for a chariot and horses, and it's not sinful today to crave for horses, especially for us Texans. Right? I get it. It's, there's nothing sinful in that, but what are other signs and clues... That your heart is craving for power, owning things or having things that grab the attention of others. That you try to establish yourself as a person of influence, as a person of needing respect. Friends, that heart that grabs and hungers for power and respect and authority. Well, friends, that that heart, that craving, is a wicked craving. Then we see in Absalom a a self-centered serving. Absalom gives the impression that he wants to help the people of Israel in their disputes. Absalom is the man who realizes um, justice is not being done well in this land. So I'm going to do something about it. He would rise up early in the morning and get out of his house regularly. And position himself on the path where the people of Israel will come and seek an audience with a king so their disputes would be resolved and that there would be justice in the land. And Absalom did this not a week or a month, not even a year. He did it for four years. Get up early in the morning, disciplined man, determined man. And soon we find out that his motivation to help people, the people of Israel, uh, in their seeking for justice was actually a very selfish and self-centered ploy, plan. Can we help others for selfish reasons? Yes, we can. To get recognition or to win their approval, their support, their loyalty. There are many reasons. Now, this should not stop us from seeking to help others. We should seek to serve and help others, but not for selfish reasons. Self-centered reasons. We see in Absalom not only uh, the the grabbing for power and attention, not only a self-centered serving, but we see in Absalom a destructive criticism. Absalom had a critical spirit against the king. Look at verse 3. He would say to the people that he encountered, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Absalom is a man who criticizes only to make himself look good. Only to draw attention to himself and only to find a way to put himself back in the picture. He has a critical spirit of of King David, not to help King David, but to replace him. Big difference. In verse 4, he tells us plainly of his plan and wishes. Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land, that every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. Absalom criticizes simply so that he can replace David. Friends, that's not a criticism that seeks to edify and to build up, that's a criticism that seeks to destroy. Friends, the spirit of Absalom can cr- easily creep up in our own hearts when we have something to criticize. Now, let me be very clear. It is not wrong to bring up a criticism or to address an issue that is not right or not working well or to bring up an issue that could be improved. It's not wrong to to bring that up as a criticism, as a constructive criticism. Actually, it's very helpful when people give such feedback And when they do it well, we want to be a community where if we see something that could be improved and could be dealt with better, or when something is not going well, that people have the freedom to bring it up. But often, we can fall in the trap of bringing up criticism in a wrong and destructive way, motivated by selfish desires. And this is what Absalom does here. And and we see, finally, another clue about Absalom's ploy here in that he is a manipulator of emotions. He knows how to play the emotions. Absalom used empathy and affections as a means of stealing the people's hearts. Back in verse 3, he would tell people that their causes are good and right, I wonder if Absalom ever told anyone that actually he's not in the right. He would be very, very empathetic to their cause. And then in verse 5, he would show affection to them. Look, look at verse 5. Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, now why would they pay homage to him? Well, because he was a king's son. There are certain protocols People would pay homage to the royal family. When, when, when they would pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom is the leader people could relate to. He is one that people could get near to. He's a leader that people felt connected to. He would know how to make you feel like He's close to you and for you. Friends, I bring this up because this is a means that some people use to acquire influence. Now, it's not wrong. It is not wrong to be approachable. It's not wrong to show empathy. It's not wrong to show that people can come close People can connect with you. These are great qualities. But just because those elements are present in a leader, it does not mean that he is someone worthy of following. Wrong leaders can have these qualities too. And the narrator makes a clear indictment of Absalom in verse 6. When he draws this conclusion, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. The word for stealing the heart is not a positive word here. It implies that Absalom used emotional manipulation to shift the hearts of the Israelites to follow him instead. And how foolish of the people of Israel to be so gullible as to shift their loyalty and affections towards Absalom, simply because he was empathetic, approachable, and accessible. Friends, today, our society puts these values on such a high pedestal. Our society idolizes empathy, approachability, accessibility. Friends, do you allow these values, though they are good, I, I, don't, hear me, don't hear me wrongly. They are good qualities. But do we so hold on to them, grab hold of them, that we idolize them in such a way that the mere presence of these blinds us to the other qualities and characteristics that our leaders should have before we attach ourselves to them? After doing all that for four years, Absalom is ready to strike with a coup. In verses 7 through 12, we see how Absalom planned and executed the scoop. He went to the king and asked for permission to travel to Hebron under the pretense of worshiping God. Absalom goes back to the very city that was very meaningful to David. If you remember, Hebron was where David first became king. Or David reigned as Israel's king or Judah's king for the first seven years. And now Abs- Absalom wants to do the same. He wants to go there. And we're told that there were 200 people from Jerusalem who he invited as guests to this event in Hebron. But in verse 11, we're told that they went to Hebron and were un- or, or were intentionally not given the full picture. They went in their innocence and knew nothing of what was about to happen. The guests that Absalom invites don't have the full picture. This is the path of revolt. This is what sin does to us, friends. It never paints the full picture. It just calls you to a party. You are among the selected group of all the citizens of Jerusalem, you are are the the exclusive 200 that have been invited to an exclusive party at Hebron. You don't get the full picture. That's what sin does. This is an important detail about the crowd that follows Absalom because The crowd that follows him is in such a contrast to the crowd that will follow King David as he flees the city. And it will be such a difference in what Absalom did to gain the crowd and in what David did towards a crowd that wanted to follow him. Huge contrasts in this chapter, not just merely between Absalom and David. But between the the crowds that were following them and the means these leaders used to get them. Verse 12, the narrator shows us, and he shows us his hand in telling us how he frames Absalom's effort. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. How sad that the number of the Israelites increased in siding with this conspiracy. Well, friends, the people of God can fall in the trap of believing and following conspiracies. There are some people who, especially in the last few years, have developed a hobby of digging into conspiracy theories and have a soft spot for them. I want to warn you, not to fall in conspiracy theories that lead you to follow the wrong leaders. Friends, this may happen in the life of local churches. This may happen in our political scene, in our nation. We often fall for the long, wrong leaders because they persuade us with their winsomeness, with their determination, with their approachability, with their accessibility, with them being like us, be careful. Don't let your heart follow leaders who lead conspiracies. Sadly, one of David's own counselors, actually the best of David's counselors, Ahithophel, sided with Absalom. Even for, you know, it's one thing for the, for the crowds. We say, how could they be so gullible? How could the crowds be so gullible to go after Absalom's emotional manipulation of them? But here's also Ahitophel, David's wisest and ablest of counselors, humanly speaking. Even for this wise counselor... Of David, the future of the kingdom of God seemed to be more secure with Absalom than with David. In other words, it's not just the masses and the gullible crowds that fell for this trap, but even the wisest of counselors. Notice how Absalom's revolt is described to the king. It's an important detail in verse 13. Not merely that Absalom became king, but this whole story is framed as the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. The people of God have fallen in the trap of following the the wrong leader again, the self-appointed leader. And just because Absalom was part of David's family did not make him the legitimate new king to follow. And there's an indictment here, I think, even on the people of God. Friends, the path of revolt of seeking to steal the throne can pull any of us. Any of us can follow in this path. And I wonder if you have been an an Israelite in that time, living in this conspiracy season, I wonder who you would have followed. I wonder if you had followed the crowds because the crowds were increasing. With Absalom he's a younger king the future is with a young king he is more trendy he's more approachable he's more empathetic he gets us friends think how sin tries to paint God as a father who is unapproachable as a God who's not carrying out his justice that we need to take justice in our own hands In the winsomeness of Absalom, we hear the spirit of revolt against our Father who made us. Learn from Absalom how the spirit of revolt mounts up in us, seeking attention and power from others, seeking to even serve others with self-centered motives, criticizing others for destructive purposes, manipulating emotions, and ultimately going for the throne. But reality is that you may feel like, okay, I'm not Absalom. Yeah, you may not be Absalom, but are you one of the Israelites that follows him? Are you one of the Israelites who would be gullible to follow him or who would be so wise that you think, oh, no, this is the wisest way? Vullibility or wisdom, doesn't matter how you feel about yourself, you can follow the wrong king. And what we see in the rest of this chapter is how David responds, how David responds to this revolt. And David's response, there's a number of clues and a number of moves that David makes here, but David's response in a nutshell is summarized in this way. In the midst of all this revolt, David is seeking refuge. And I don't mean refuge outside of Jerusalem, although he does that. He flees Jerusalem right away. He commands his servants to run away. But at this moment, David takes a path of refuge and fleeing. Not merely out of Jerusalem, but fleeing and refuge in the Lord. How do we see that? Look with me. How David responds, what he does with the crowds, how he answers as he has dialogue with some of the people in the crowds shows where David's heart is fleeing to, even though physically he doesn't know where he's going. Number one, David is not relying on great numbers. David is not relying on great numbers. When when all the people who 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 could follow him pass before him, he catches one guy, a Gittite, a newly convert, a guy who had just become a member of the people of God the other day. He even says yesterday. I don't know if it's like literally 24 hours ago or like just recently. Look at verse 20, you came only yesterday. Shall I today make you wander about with us since I go, I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you and and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Friends, David is not scrambling to keep everyone near him because his confidence is not in the size of the people remaining with him. But this Gittite responds with an amazing statement of loyalty to David. And the narrator captures the words of this Gittite because they are in such a big contrast with Absalom, with Ahithophel, and with the rest of the crowds that were increasing in following Absalom. Here are the words of Ahithophel. As the Lord lives... I'm sorry, uh, here are the words of the Gittite... Itait, Itai, the Gittite. As the Lord lives, and as my Lord, the King, lives, wherever the Lord, the King, shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. For this Gittite, it was more important to follow God's appointed King, even if it meant a lack of stability and certainty, a lack of not knowing where he will live, what he will eat, even if they're going to survive this revolt. David warned him that lodging, food, and where they will go, it's unclear. But for this Gittite, even death would not be an obstacle to follow King David. the Gittite was a non-israelite he was not a jew and he was a recent convert he had recently joined the people of god oh what a contrast of his loyalty in contrast to the son of david named absalom What a contrast to the wisest of counselors among David's council team. What a contrast with the crowds that were increasing. Oh, do you feel the the narrator's ironic shiding and rebuke of the people of Israel that he puts before us the loyalty of a non-Israelite following God's appointed king? David also refuses not only to get numbers he he doesn't put his confidence in numbers David refuses to use the ark of the lord in a manipulating way another feature that shows up in this crowd that was uh, that was building up to follow David is all the levites and the levites show up with the ark of the covenant I mean, think as a political leader, if you're thinking, wow, how can I bring security, stability, hold on to whatever I could hold on to so that this revolt will not overcome me? I mean, getting the Levites and getting the Ark of the Lord to be in my camp with me, I mean, that will surely secure the optics for the crowd that I am on God's side, that God is on my side because I got the Ark of the Covenant. You can see how that could be played by David in such a, such a subtle and manipulative way to use even religion to get your way done. But David would have none of it. Perhaps, perhaps David had heard the story. He, didn't live to, he, didn't, he wasn't born to live it, Perhaps he had heard the story of 1 Samuel chapter 4 when uh, two priests brought the Ark of the Covenant on a battlefield, thinking that the Ark of the Lord will secure victory. And David tells us here that he's learned that lesson. It's not the Ark of the Covenant. It's not the presence of this religious stuff. Although it was good, And although God has associated his presence with the ark, you cannot manipulate it. David refuses to assume that the ark of God would help his case. David knew that in his case, it was not religion, not a religious ritual that would solve his situation, but that David had to find his strength and confidence in God alone. David's response to Tzadok provided a key window into what David trusted into. Look at verse 25 and 26. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. And let me see both it, the ark, and his dwelling place. But, and here's the other amazing part in his answer, but if I have no pleasure, if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Here's David showing us his heart of trust in the Lord. David believes that his case rests on God's unmerited favor. Not on God's entitled favor. On God's unmerited favor. If it is God's will for David to return to Jerusalem, God will make it happen. But David is also considering the possibility that God's will may not be his desire, he, similar to David's desire. Perhaps David remembered the judgment that God decreed against him, that out of his own household, God will raise up the sword against him. And David holds up the possibility that if God still finds no pleasure in David to keep him on the throne, if this is God's way of saying, I'm bringing you down from the t- throne, I'm bringing you down, your, your time to reign is over. David says, if this is what seems good to the Lord, let him do to me what seems good to him. David embraces that God's discipline, whatever it is, is good. Oh, friends, I hope that we as Christians can hold on to these words, behold, here I am, Let him do to me what seems good to him. No matter what you're going through. No matter what you hope to happen in your life. Hold on to these words. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Once David has taken a pass from relying on the great numbers of his proud, or relying on the presence of the ark of the Lord and instead showing that his confidence trusts in God's favor and in God's goodness to do what seems good to him, David is set on walking out of Jerusalem, weeping. It's amazing that as he sets his Gaze to get out of Jerusalem, trusting fully in God's favor and in God's plans. The picture here is amazing. In verse 30, we are told that he was weeping as he went, and the people were also covering their heads and they were weeping as they went. And we are told that even all the land was weeping aloud as they went. It's as if creation itself feels the pain of this, of this departure of God's anointed king having to flee from the throne that God had appointed him on. But David, as he leaves... In pain, in disappointment, in uncertainty, he crosses the brook Kidron. You say, why is that significant? Hold on to that to the name of that brook. Hold on to the name of that brook. And as David fled, after passing the book brook Kidron. And as he ascended on the Mount of Olives, hold on to that name. As he ascended on the Mount of Olives, he wept, and people with him weeping. And he hears another news. Up to this moment, he has no idea that Ahithophel is also among the conspirators. Conspirators. And uh, David's heart, it's like he's, he's melting away. And yet, in hearing that setback, that even the best of his counselors, who was closest to him, even he turned his hand against him. David has a prayer to the Lord in verse 31. It's not a long prayer. It's a short prayer. It's a very spot-on prayer. David said, O oh Lord, please, please, Turned the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. David knew that if the people of Israel listened to Ahithophel, it would be the end of his life. It would be deadly because of this man's counsel in the past has been so good and so weighty in David's administration. But David believes that God can turn even the counsel of the wisest into foolishness. So he prays, God, do this. A heart that trusts in the Lord even while he heard news that melted him away. So David prays. Relying on God should always lead us to prayer. The heart that trusts God is the heart that prays. It's amazing that that's the first thing David does when he hears. And what's sweet and beautiful about this little experience here is that by the time David gets up to the top of the Mount of Olives, God brings a solution in the person of Hushai. By the time David reached the top of the mountain... Hushite the Archite shows up, and uh, David says to him too, listen, listen my friend, don't stay with me, go back, and there's something you can do, you can do something to defeat Ahithophel's counsel. David instructs him to go and counter Ahithophel's counsel. And this shows that relying on the Lord and trusting Him does not mean that we become passive. There's human responsibility even as we pray and trust in the Lord. David's trust in the Lord does not mean that he should say nothing to this man who showed up, who seemed to be God's provision. As we see in chapter 16, Hushai will be the man the Lord uses to defeat Ahitophel's counsel. Some people think that trusting in the Lord to bring healing or to, to bring a solution means refusing to go to the doctor or refusing to do what we can do, uh, what, what is in our ability to do. Friends, it's foolish to think that human means are somehow a, a contrast to trusting in the Lord. Oftentimes, the Lord works through human means. Our confidence should never be in the human means. It should be in the Lord who can do amazing things, miraculous things, even through human means. Other times the Lord can work against human means, without human means. But here we see in David a heart that trusts in the Lord and also realizes the Lord provided a solution in a man who just walked up and met him at the top of the mountain. Friends, we should never put our ultimate trust in human means, but in the Lord. Yet that does not mean that we neglect human means and responsibilities. We can and should employ these from a heart whose confidence is in the Lord to use whatever means he chooses. Here's David showing that heart of trusting in the Lord and yet receiving and, and ministering to and, and stewarding the, the means that the Lord has given him. Friends, David's response to Absalom's revolt reveals that as he is seeking refuge to flee from Jerusalem, he's actually seeking refuge in the Lord. Trusting in the Lord means that we have a loose grip on human means sometimes it means holding loosely the human means telling people you can go you don't have to stay with me my confidence is not in the human numbers holding loosely to human strength being willing to part ways with it it also means trusting the lord means refusing to manipulate the optics of religion trusting in the lord involves prayer Trusting in the Lord also means carrying out human responsibilities. Don't be so passive that you don't have eyes to see the means the Lord is putting before you as solutions, as means towards the answer the Lord wants to give you. Ask the Lord to give you the eyes of faith. To act. It was an act of faith for David to send Hushai back. Friends, David here shows us a heart who has recalibrated to trust in the Lord fully. It took the tasting of the bitter experience of sin, of being the target of revolt, being revolted against. When his own son would turn against him, David would understand something about the heart of the Heavenly Father that only this discipline gave him that experience. But in this discipline, in this experience, David actually sets the pattern and sets an anticipation of another son, of another king who would come, who would come to his own, and his own received him not. Who would come to his own people, And he was rejected, as we have heard from the beginning of the Gospel of John at the beginning of the service today. And this king, who had come to dwell and to be enthroned on the the throne of his father David, was cast out of Jerusalem. And as he was approaching his own rejection, And the manifestation of that rejection by being killed on a cross, he walked up the Mount of Olives. And he crossed the Kidron Brook. Listen to how the Gospel of John describes the beginnings of the Passion of Jesus after he had spoken to his disciples, John 18, 11, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden in which he and his disciples entered. It was in that garden that one of Jesus' closest companions came Judas leading the army, the soldiers, to help identify who Jesus was. And there in that garden, he was betrayed by one of his closest allies. Friends, God in his amazing plan decreed that the discipline that David would go through in this portion of 2 Samuel would actually be not merely to help David feel the the heart of a father seeing his son revolt against him, but in this story, David actually sets an anticipation of another Davidic king who would cross the same brook, walk up the same mountain, Be rejected, be betrayed by his own. Not because of his sin, but because of our sin. That's what Jesus endured for my sin and yours. This is what Jesus went through so that your sin and my sin could be forgiven, could be paid for. Not in part. But in whole, entirely, so that all those who would repent and trust in Jesus alone, in His death, in His resurrection, would become children of God, born not of the will of the flesh, born not of men, but born of God. Friends, this is the amazing, great news of the gospel that we proclaim, that we declare, that we as Christians hold on to. And that's why a chapter like this in 2 Samuel 15 shows us the pattern, the anticipation of two paths. The path of revolt, seeking to to steal the throne for yourself or to follow the leader who, who takes you on the path of revolt or seeking refuge in the God who can save us. I wonder on which path you are on this morning. Revolt or refuge? Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us through this passage that the bitter taste of sin leads us to seek refuge in you. Father, there are some this morning who right now are feeling the sweet taste of sin in their mouths, in their life experiences. Lord, we pray and ask that you would grant them the grace to experience the bitter side of sin so that in their disappointment, they would turn to you and trust in you. Father, protect our own hearts from being gullible or too wise in our own eyes to seek the wrong heroes, the, the wrong leaders who would lead us astray, astray from the king that you have appointed. Open our eyes to seeking Jesus, the king you have prepared for us, so that through him we might experience life with you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.